Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You strap it on like a backpack. It's like a small mattress that's attached to your back. And if you fall backwards, then you're falling on this pad, so to speak. I kind of feel like sometimes when I hike, I should be wearing a crash pad. <laughs> a helmet. Let's start you off with the helmet. But- you can start you off with the helmet. If that goes well, we'll think about a crash pad. I would but I act- like the idea. I'm, yeah, not, I'm not opposed yeah. to it. I would actually also need a crash pad on the front side of me. Yeah. I'd look like SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is part one of a two-part series about Southern California's desert playground. In this episode, we're covering Joshua Tree National Park. This park not only features and protects the beloved Joshua Tree, It showcases wonderlands of rocks and a unique desert landscape. We'll share our favorite hikes in the park, plus lodging options, restaurants, and some things you'll want to know before you go. And next week, in part two, we'll move a little bit south of the park and cover the diverse areas throughout the greater Palm Springs region, where you'll find some of the best hiking trails in Southern California. Thanks for joining us today as we explore the wonders of Joshua Tree National Park. have had a lot of new listeners lately. So thank you for checking out our podcast and thank you for tuning in. Yeah, it's great to see new listeners. And also, we want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon for supporting us. That really helps us out a lot. And we really do appreciate your support. So if you're interested in supporting us through Patreon, the link is in our show notes of this episode. That's right. And we produce some bonus content every month uh, for our Patreon listeners. So if you are new to us, this is a podcast about the national parks and, very importantly, other public lands. We try to cover a lot of the units in the National Park Service, as well as things like state parks and Bureau of Land Management sites. Celebrating our public lands and um, the idiosyncrasies of traveling together for... Many, many miles in the car. (laughs) That's right. We also like to talk about road trips and, and, you know, about gear, because when when we hike in the national parks, there are certain things we need. So we cover a lot of different topics, but we want to be clear that we do not consider ourselves experts of the national parks. Or 
experts of anything at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually, a lot of times, we're telling people what we did as an example of what not to do. It's just one couple's experience traveling uh, to the, our public lands uh, with a you know, with a passion for seeing and enjoying our, our public spaces. Right. And, you know, we hope what you will take away from listening to our podcast episodes is the possibility of what is out there in our country. Because, you know, both Matt and I grew up in Kansas before the age of the internet. And so we were never aware of any of these public lands. We didn't even know they existed. Right. If it wasn't in our backyard, we didn't know that it existed. But, you know, you brought up a good point, which is possibilities. A lot of times we talk about really great experiences we had, or you'll see them on social media. Somebody went to this place, they saw this incredible sunset or wildlife or whatever. And when you're dealing with outdoor travel, so much of your experience is affected by time of year, weather, events that are completely out of your control. And so it's not so much trying to recreate a specific activity or event, right? It is putting yourself out into these incredible places for the possibility of the magic to happen. And the one thing that we have found is if you put yourself out there and in these positions often enough, something magical does happen. We just can't tell you what it's going to be. Well, exactly. And the other thing too is there is there is the journey of discovery for yourself. And you know, a lot of times when things go wrong and you know, you've planned on doing a certain hike or seeing a certain park and and maybe it's closed because there are wildfires or or whatever and you go to plan B, sometimes plan B turns out better than plan A and you discover something that you didn't even know about. We have had many great plan E's and F's before. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's part of it. And it's actually is part of the fun too, is not fully knowing what, what's going to happen next. Right. It makes it feel like more an, of an adventure. So I guess what we hope you'll take away from our podcast is not so much an itinerary as maybe just knowing the possibilities of what is out there and what you could see and what you could do. And who knows what kind of interest it will spark in you and your family. You know, not to sound cliche, but it is a journey. And we're really happy that you are coming along with us for this journey. Yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about possibilities in Joshua Tree National Park, part one of our two-part series, followed by an episode about the greater Palm Springs area. Right, and they're so close to each other that it would be a shame to miss either one. It would be a shame to go to Joshua Tree and not see this greater Palm Springs area and vice versa. So, Matt, shall we get started? Yes, we should. Joshua Tree National Park, like we said, is in Southern California. It's about 130 miles east of Los Angeles. Uh, it's closer to Palm Springs. I don't know, maybe 
gosh, when we drive from Palm Springs up to the park, it takes maybe 40 minutes. Um, so it's pretty close. Yeah, it depends on where you're staying, of course, in the greater Palm Springs area. Now, this park gets about 3 million visitors a year. And a lot of those people like to come in the spring, especially during spring break. This is a big spring break destination. Yeah, as I can imagine it would be. I mean, it's being so close to a large metropolitan area, it gets a lot of love. It does, especially in March. I think March has the highest volume of visitors. Now, late fall is a really good time to visit as well, like late October, November, because the summer temps have come down. December and January can be a little chilly. But you know, Matt, I was looking back through all of our photos. We've probably been to Joshua Tree about half a dozen times and it's always in january or february <laughs> right we were there this uh, last january end of january and the weather was great when we were hiking in the park yes you know the days in the desert even if it just gets to let's say 55 degrees it feels nice and warm and of course it's typically sunny and if you're doing strenuous hikes it's kind of actually nice when you're huffing and puffing and going up the hills uh, for it to be a little cooler Yes, absolutely. So just one tip on that. If you do have a trip planned for March, we have seen we have seen on Instagram, um, Joshua Tree National Park has posted photos of the backup, you know, trying to get through the entrance station and cars are backed up for miles. So if you're going for a visit in March, definitely, definitely get to the park early. Bring your patience. <laughs> right. All right, Karen, let's talk about what Joshua trees are. Yes, the namesake of the park are the charming Joshua trees. If you haven't seen them before, they're these kind of spindly, whimsical looking, um, like Dr. Seuss trees. Dr. Seuss trees. And I see here on the outline, it's a member of the agave family. Yeah, it's not actually a tree at all. It's not a tree. Well, I know it doesn't have <laughs> growth rings, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but they're not always sure how old these things are because you can't cut one down and count the rings. Right, right. Now, these trees only grow between elevations of 2,000 and 6,000 feet, so pretty specific. They are prolific in the Mojave Desert, but you can also find them growing uh, next to a saguaro cactus in the Sonoran Desert in western Arizona, and you can find them mixed in with pine trees in the San Bernardino Mountains. So you can find them outside of Joshua Tree National Park. And there is another National Park Service unit where they have the most Joshua trees. Yeah, the Mojave National Preserve that we always visit when we're in Las Vegas. They have a ton of Joshua trees. Now, unfortunately, huge areas of trees have burned down in two recent fires. But the park has a restoration plan. They're actually planting 4,000 Joshua trees over four years. Right. And this same swath of land, as it continues east across the border into Nevada, it becomes part of a Viquame National Monument with more Joshua tree forests. So as, as you mentioned, Matt, about growth rings, since they don't have them, the best way to estimate their age is based on their height. Um, they're slow growers. They grow at rates of about a half an inch to three inches per year. Yeah, they think it takes about 50 to 60 years for a, a Joshua tree to reach its full height. 
and then they think the average lifespan is about 150 years old, and some are as old as 500 years. And the tallest trees in the park are 40 plus feet high, which for a tree isn't that tall, but for a Joshua tree, when you see one that's 40 feet tall, it looks like... A giant, because most of them are so small and spindly. Yeah, and some, I think, when they get that big, they're uh, so big and, I don't know, maybe so healthy. Some of the branches are prone to break off. We've we've seen this with some of the really big specimens in the park. Yeah. Now, if you're lucky and you're there at the right time, you might see them blooming. They bloom in the spring, and the the blooms on the Joshua tree are absolutely beautiful, but they do need really specific conditions in order to bloom. They need uh, well-timed rains, and Karen, they need a crisp winter freeze. (laughs) And you know why that is? Uh, No no clue why that is. Well, because researchers believe that freezing temperatures can damage the growing end of a branch, and that stimulates the flowering, followed by branching. So when you're going through the park and you see the Joshua trees that are just growing like straight stalks, they don't have any branches, that means they have never bloomed. Oh, I see. Yeah, I know. I thought that meant they were just baby trees because we saw a lot of them when we were there a few weeks ago. But So they need a crisp winter freeze. Yes, and they need one more thing. They also need to be pollinated by the yucca moth. Oh, yeah, you got to get the moths. Do the moths like a crisp winter freeze? Because maybe this is the problem combination there. (laughs) Right, so they need rain, a freeze, and some moths. And then you have this gorgeous bloom in the springs. So if you're going in spring, keep an eye out. Maybe you'll get lucky and see some of these pretty blooms. Yeah, this is your audition for Plant Planet. (laughs) This is your, your history channel gig is going pretty well. You know what, Matt? Right now I'm going to combine a little history channel with the with the botany, is that? Botany? Yeah, yeah. Plant, plant planet. I know it doesn't <laughs> roll off your tongue as easily as animal planet, but plant planet, plant planet and, and history channel. Do you have special music for that combo? I do not. And okay. this is going to be really quick, but I did want to mention that, you know, native people lived in this area for generations, and they used Joshua trees in different ways. They they took the leaves of the Joshua tree and they worked them into their baskets and their sandals, and then they ate the flower buds and they also roasted the seeds or ate them raw. So they were using all different parts of the Joshua tree. Also wanted to mention that Mormon settlers and ranchers and miners, when they came to the high desert to raise cattle and dig for gold, they also used the Joshua tree, but they were using the limbs and the trunks for fencing and corrals. Currently, these trees are protected. We're going to talk about that in a second. So the living things that are currently using these trees are birds, mammals, reptiles, and insects. And they use the Joshua tree for food and shelter. Got it. Joshua trees are endangered for a couple of reasons, and because of that, they're protected. In California, there's a new law called the Western Joshua Tree Conservation Act. It permanently protects the this species. Scientists have projected that uh, the Joshua trees may be uh, completely gone from the national park by the end of the century. 
which certainly would be a tragedy. Well, yes. And unfortunately, last year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declined to list Joshua trees under the Federal Endangered Species Act. And that was a huge disappointment to a lot of people. And so that's why California lawmakers took it into their own hands to pass the Western Joshua Tree Conservation Act. You know, there are now measures in place to protect the trees. However, there are things out of anyone's control, like prolonged drought, that are expected to shrink the species range and lead to more tree deaths. Um, And at higher elevations, uh, they're at risk of fire because of invasive non-native grasses. So there are a lot of things, unfortunately, that are contributing to their demise. All right. So they're they're having a rough time of it. Mm -hmm. So this is why you should plan a trip to Joshua Tree sooner rather than later. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Let's move on to the park itself. Okay. So this park, interestingly, has four visitor centers. Now, two of them are outside of the park. There's one in downtown 29 Palms, and there's one in downtown Joshua Tree, the town of Joshua Tree. Yeah. And then there's two in the park. There's the Cottonwood Visitor Center and the Black Rock Nature Center. Now, one important thing for visitors to know is that once you get inside the park, there are no services. So there aren't any gas stations, restaurants, grocery stores, lodging, anything like that. So you're going to want to make sure you bring all your own food, water, supplies, and have a full tank of gas. Yeah, and there are there's no um, cell phone reception generally in the park. I mean, when we have hiked, I remember getting like little blips of cell reception, but you can't count on it. Right. Yeah. So just know that you're going to be offline. And you know, one of the really charming things about Joshua Tree National Park is that there are all kinds of little pull-off spots with picnic tables and surrounded by giant boulders that your kids can play on. So we think the best thing to do is to bring a picnic lunch rather than trying to leave the park and, and go to a restaurant and then get back in the park. Bring a picnic and you will have a lot of places where you can enjoy that. So just spend the day in the park. That's right. All right, Matt, before we dive further into things like hiking, guess what it's time for? I have a really special history channel today. Do you? (laughs) Are are you going to use the music? Is this because not all the history channel episodes you use the music? I I have no idea what, what the criteria is. This one is definitely worthy of the music. All right. So as I mentioned before, the Joshua Tree area has been inhabited by Native Americans for at least 5,000 years. But we're going to fast forward to the late 1920s and see what's going on in this area. And what's happening is there is a lot of development. New roads are being built into the desert, and there's an influx of land developers who are chopping down Joshua trees, and there are also cactus poachers who are coming in. I like how this History Channel skipped right to the 20th century, because we usually linger some in the 19th century, right? (laughs) So we're we're up to 1920s. It's sounding good. Well, it's going to get even better. And you know why, Matt? Because... It seems like in a lot of the parks when when I have the History Channel, I talk about the father of the National Park, the man who was responsible for the development of the park. But you know what? In this case, Matt, Joshua Tree has a mother. 
That's great. No, <laughs> normally, I, I'm not allowed to talk okay. during <laughs> History Channel. I've already spoken quite a bit. You have. Too much. Yeah. All right. All right. I've, I've got to go right. get some coffee. All right. One of the more unusual stories throughout the history of our national parks is how a transplanted Southern Belle who was born on a Mississippi plantation became a staunch backer of the protection of desert landscapes. Her name was Minerva Hamilton Hoyt. She had married a man named Dr. Sherman Hoyt, and he took her from the Deep South to New York and eventually to South Pasadena in 1897, where she immersed herself in Southern California, high society, and civic causes. So we did slip back into the 19th century. Just for a second. Just Just for a few years. All right. So Minerva took up gardening, and she fell in love with the native desert plants that were used in Southern California landscaping projects. She took trips out into the desert, where she discovered Joshua trees and other plants that she'd never seen before. Okay, so Matt, this is where I like to tie in the possibilities. So just imagine for a minute... Okay, Minerva lives on a plantation in Mississippi. She's a Southern belle. Now she is living in Southern California and she has discovered the desert. She's discovered Joshua trees. She's discovered all the plant life in the desert. Can you even imagine what she must be thinking? She must have thought about what incredible possibilities she has. Yes, I know. And I think it just speaks to what we said about she wouldn't have known about any of this until she moved out there. So, you know, the possibilities are there for all of us still currently today. But I digress. Okay, so as uh, Minerva is admiring the native desert plants, she's also discovering that people are digging them up, burning and otherwise destroying so many of these Joshua trees as they're building roads and developing the area. So following the death of her husband in 1918, Minerva dedicated herself to the cause of protecting these desert landscapes. She founded the International Deserts Conservation League with the goal of establishing parks to preserve these landscapes. She served on the California State Commission formed to recommend proposals for new state parks. She prepared the commission's report on desert parks and recommended large parks be created at, get this, Death Valley, the Anzo Borrego Desert, and in the Joshua Tree Forest of the Little San Bernardino Mountains north of Palm Springs. That, of course, would be current day Joshua Tree National Park. Hoyt became convinced that a national park was the best option for preserving these large desert areas. So she hired well-known biologists and desert ecologists to prepare their reports on the virtues of this Joshua Tree region. Then she was introduced to President Franklin Roosevelt, whose New Deal administration became active in the establishment of national parks and monuments as a jobs creation initiative. Let's bring in the CCC. Hello. Hello. (laughs) You mentioned every episode, the CCC. I'm a broken record. So Minerva had a major success when President Roosevelt asked the National Park Service to prepare a recommendation on the site. And on August 10th, 1936, President Roosevelt signed a presidential proclamation establishing Joshua Tree National Monument. Minerva finally had her grand desert park. 
gosh, it just chokes me up. Sorry. <laughs> are you are you, you going to cry? Yeah, you know, you haven't cried in like many episodes. I know. Just think of just think of what this woman did for all of us. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> How is she not a household name? <laughs> yeah, it's just Minerva. Minerva. I yeah, I yeah. So then 58 years later, as part of the Desert Protection Bill, Joshua Tree National Monument was elevated to national park status in October of 1994. This bill also added 234,000 acres. So currently the park is just under 800,000 acres. And, uh, you know, a big thanks to Minerva Hoyt for all the work she did as the mother of Joshua Tree National Park. I can talk now. I feel like you should be clapping. <laughs> oh, uh, some applause, maybe. <laughs> it's fantastic. Could you like edit in some audio of clapping? Yes, I will. Okay, great. You know, you know what I'm most happy about? We're in the 21st century again. I know. And we're going to talk about what the heck you can do in the park. And your favorite, your favorite topic, hiking. Right. There are a lot of great. Short hikes, long hikes, we're going to talk about all of them. Uh, let's talk about the short hikes and nature trails first. All right. We're just going to kind of give a list here because there are a lot of them. And these are, you know, quick stops, but definitely worthy stops. So there is Arch Rock. It's only 1.4 miles. And you can add on Heart Rock to make it about 1.7 miles. And yes, Heart Rock looks just like a heart. I saw a social mm. post very recently. Well, yes, because uh, we're near uh, Valentine's Day. And, oh, I, I see. Okay. Well, <laughs> right. yeah, this this episode is coming out uh, after Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. you have to remember that for next year. Right. Get your pictures of Heart Rock. All right. There's also Barker Dam. That's 1.1 miles. You've got Cap Rock, which is a half mile loop. Also the Choya Cactus Garden. And that's a quarter of a mile. And I guess that's a great spot to either catch both the sunrise or sunset. Yeah, I've seen photos of that. We haven't made it there for either sunrise or sunset. But as the sun is hitting those um, those particular cactus, they light up in a really unusual way. And it is absolutely beautiful. One word of warning, though, the Choya cactus's barbed spines are sticky and they like to attach themselves to humans who brush by. I guess the thorns are really painful, both in your skin and the process of removing them that, well, they're barbed. Right. Yeah. They're, they're huge thorns. I've seen photos of people with them stuck to their legs and arms. So uh, be sure and watch your, your little kiddos too in this area because that would be, that would be an unfortunate occurrence. Yeah. That's why I, I always wear long pants. Yeah, I mean they can still stick to your pants, but hopefully they, they wouldn't. Yes. They wouldn't pierce. I don't know if they would pierce. Them. I don't know if, <laughs> if they're piercing or not. I know they're we, barbed. They're barbed. We hope to never find out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Uh, then you have the 49 Palms Oasis, which is an easy three-mile stroll. And something that a lot of people don't know about that is a really fun scramble is the Hall of Horrors. Yeah, we were going to try to do the Hall of Horrors this last trip. We ran out of daylight. 
Yeah, this is a fun little slot canyon that's not a really long hike to do. Now, the slot canyon part is located in a giant stack of boulders. And if you want to see the slot canyon, you know, you're going to have to look for it. It requires rock scrambling. Sometimes finding it is the trickiest part of the hike. But if you do the loop trail, it's about a half mile. If you add on the Slot Canyon scramble, it's about 0.8 miles. But just in a nutshell, when you're looking at this area, there are three clusters of giant boulders. And the Slot Canyon section is located in the second pile of boulders in the southwest corner. And it's actually two Slot Canyons that are side by side. But it's not visible from the trail. You actually have to climb up on some boulders to find it. So that's a lot of detail. Or ask a ranger or, or for a specific. Ask a ranger. That's, <laughs> that's a what we would much do. Much better idea. <laughs> yes. All right. There's also the Hidden Valley Trail, which is about a mile long, and also Skull Rock, 1.7 miles. So a good selection of shorter, easier hikes. Yes. And, you know, for your Halloween photo, Skull Rock actually does look like a skull. So you could you could capture that and share that at Halloween time. Yeah, you could go get all of your social posts for the year, <laughs> all the different holidays. Right. But, you know, one of the great things about Joshua Tree National Park is it does have hikes for everyone. So a lot of, you know, short hikes, as we just mentioned, easy hikes. If you've got little kids, they're great. If you're looking for something longer and more strenuous, we'll mention a few here. The first one is Ryan Mountain, and that's kind of like in the middle of the northern part of the park. It's about three miles in length, 1,000 feet of elevation gain. It's a little bit exposed, so it can be windy. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we hiked that, it was like 10, 12 years ago. It was windy on our hike it up there. It was really windy. So this is listed in the longer strenuous hikes, not because it's so long. I mean, three miles round trip is a fairly short hike, but you have a thousand feet of elevation gain in that one and a half miles. So it is it is a little bit of an uphill slog for sure. <laughs> but you have 360 degree views at the top. Yes. So that's pretty cool. It's a, It's one of the most popular hikes in the park. Now, another one that a lot of people don't really know about, and I think they're kind of scared away by the distance, is the Boy Scout Trail. Now, it's eight miles one way. So you're starting at one point and you are ending at a different point at the eight miles. Of course, if you do it out and back, you're looking at 16 miles and about 1,200 feet of elevation gain. Yeah, that's not a ton of elevation gain across eight miles, though, one way. Right. Yeah, so it's it's not strenuous in that sense. However, there's a lot of boulders and there are places on the trail that you can get lost if you like wander through the boulders. So, um it's it's important on this particular trail to keep track of where you you're at and it helps if you have something like a Gaia GPS. Now, most hikers start at the south trailhead inside the west entrance, and then they finish at the north at Indian Cove. Obviously, if you do this, you know, your car is going to be parked in a different place than where you finish up. So you either need to have two cars or you need to arrange for a shuttle to take you back to your car. When we did it, we did not do the whole thing. We were camping at Indian Cove, so we started at the Indian Cove area trailhead. We did about three miles miles out and then turned around and went back. Um, So that's always a good option is you could just do a few miles, get a taste of it, and then go back to where you are parked. Yeah, we ran out of daylight. Right. And and that first, it seemed like that first, I don't know, half mile to a mile 
was pretty flat open desert yeah. before we got into the rocks. Into the wonderland of rocks. And, yep. you know, that's one of the downsides of visiting these parks in January or early February is it gets dark so early. As a safety measure, you need to be aware of what time the sun sets. Have some illumination with you so you don't get caught out there in the dark because – Gosh, you know, when we were there, when we've been there in January, it's dark at 4.30. So you really have to be aware of that. You have at least a couple of uh, ways to light up your space. Flashlights, headlamps. Don't count on your phone because it really doesn't put out as much light as you think it does. Now, one area that we particularly like that a ranger recommended to us, I don't know that we would have discovered this on our own because it's in a different section of the park. This is the Black Rock Canyon area. And there are two hikes we wanted to recommend in that area. And those are Panorama Point and Warren Peak. We've hiked Panorama Point a couple of times. I like that hike. Uh, great views uh, kind of the, at the high point of the trail. It's about 1,200 feet elevation gain, just enough to feel like you're getting some exercise, but not overly strenuous. Right. It's a lollipop loop, and the whole loop is about 6.3 miles. And we would absolutely recommend hiking the loop section of it counterclockwise because it's much less steep. It's a more gradual climb up to Panorama Point and then a steep downhill. And in our opinion, we would much rather do it that way. So that's counterclockwise. If you're interested in doing Warren Peak, it starts out on the same trail, and you're on the same trail for a big chunk of the way to um, to where you turn off for Panorama Point, and then you would go the other way for Warren Peak. And it's about the same, almost the same distance, same uh, strenuousness. Uh, Warren Peak is 5.6 miles out and back, about 1,100 feet of elevation gain. So yeah, if you had the time, maybe you're there a couple days, you could do both those hikes. We We enjoyed the Panorama Point. We love that hike. And the other thing we wanted to mention is this area of the park, as the ranger told us, there are a lot of big Joshua trees. And there's a huge one that you will pass by as you're doing Panorama Point. It's got to be, I don't know, it's got to be one of the 40-footers, Matt, right? Yeah, it's it's huge. That's mm-hmm. one where a couple of its branches are falling off just because yeah. it's so big. Yeah. All right, so that's uh, Panorama Point. Also, you have the Lost Horse Loop. And this is about a 6.5 mile loop. Now you can do, you can shorten it to about four miles if you just do the Lost Horse Mine. Yeah, that's and, an out and back. Yeah, and I, re- I remember doing this and feeling like we were in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's fun on these desert hikes, particularly where there's a little bit of elevation. They just, you feel like you're out there completely. Completely by yourself. I know. I think that was the first hike we ever did when we went to Joshua Tree National Park. And we we really enjoyed it. And I know we've done it at least one other time. You know, the first time we did it, um, the ranger that we talked to ahead of time had mentioned, you know, and be on the lookout for the tortoises, the desert tortoise. Yeah, we, we haven't had a lot of luck. We've seen a lot of tortoise holes mm-hmm. where they excavate out a little spot to stay but uh, we we haven't seen the tortoises themselves well i guess they spend 95 percent of their time underground and did you know the desert tortoise happens to be california's state reptile it was placed on both the california and federal endangered species list and the status is now at threatened 
which is just one notch below endangered. Yeah, the ranger told us that if you see a tortoise in the wild, do not pick it up. Uh, You know, handling wild tortoises is not only illegal under the Endangered Species Act, but it also could have dire consequences for the tortoise. So, Matt, I was reading about this, and it's interesting what happens if, if a tortoise becomes frightened, like if you were to pick it up, it will actually pee. Um, kind of like some humans do when they're frightened, right? But anyway, it will actually pee, and this could have life-threatening consequences for the tortoise if it's not able to replenish its water supply. So there's a solid reason there why you would not want to touch a tortoise, because you could actually lead to its death. I have said this, how many times have I said to stop sneaking up on me? Because... (laughs) Because it could happen to you. Because it could happen to me. All right. All right. right. Okay. <laughs> well, we don't have time to go into your this issues. This is why I'm, this is why I'm <laughs> but, dehydrated all okay, the time. Okay. All right. There is one exception to the do not touch a tortoise, and that is if for some reason you were to see one on the road or next to the road, like walking into the road, they certainly don't want the tortoises to be run over. So then it would be okay for you to pick the tortoise up. And they said very specifically, put the tortoise off of the road in the direction that it was trying to get to in the first place. And what if it voids its bladder? While you do that. Well. What if I void my bladder? All right. While in, moving the tortoise. Okay. All right. We're, we are done here. <laughs> we should okay. probably just yeah. move on. All righty. Now, there is a ranger-led tour in the park. This is called the Keys Ranch Tour. We have not done this, but I can't tell you how many people have recommended it to us. So it's on our list for the next time we go. Yeah. It tours the ranch, the Keys Ranch, that was built in 1910. And William and Frances Keyes lived there along with their children. They lived there for 60 years. Yes. Wow, their their kids must have been really old (laughs) when they finally left. I'm not sure the kids lived there for 60 years, but but I I don't know that for sure. Yeah, that makes more Uh, sense. But William Keyes first moved there um, in search of gold, and he started this ranch as he began mining and ranching. So you can tour this with a ranger. It's the only way you can see this property. It's closed to everyone else. You have to go with a ranger. The tours are about a half a mile of walking and last about 90 minutes. So like everything, you can buy your tickets ahead of time on recreation.gov. And they are typically held from October to May. That's kind of the season for that tour. Yeah, tickets cost 10 bucks. Uh, kids and seniors are cheaper. Mm-hmm. And they get a lot of really great reviews. We haven't done this tour, but the reviews are really good. Yeah, so if you're interested in seeing a, a 1910 ranch with a ranger, you might check out the Keys Ranch Tour. You know what one of the most popular things to do in Joshua Tree that we see all the time is... Rock climbing. Yes. Bouldering, highlining, slacklining, all of those things. All of those things. It's a very popular thing to do. And if you're interested in learning how to climb or you want to expand your climbing skills, you could hire a guide to um, take you to Joshua Tree. The only thing is the Park Service is very adamant if you're hiring a climbing guide They have to be permitted to work in the park. And before these guides can get a permit, they're required to have the highest levels of rock guiding certifications. So you want to be really clear if you're hiring someone that they have a permit to work in the park. 
Yeah, this is a great park for beginners and, and also people that are advanced. For the beginners, there's a lot of smaller rocks. By smaller, I mean like 20, 30 feet tall. Rocks that you can just practice on and you're only five feet off the ground. Right. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because I did a little research. This is something we are not familiar with at all. We have never tried it. But there are some differences in all of these things I just wanted to mention. So rock climbing is also sometimes known as rope climbing, and it's done with a rope and protective gear, while bouldering only requires climbing shoes and the use of a crash pad to break your landing. So bouldering, you're using your hands. Rock climbing, you are using ropes. So Karen, what's going on when you see these people with the crash pads on their back? It's like a huge backpack. I know. And it's such a great idea because I guess the the theory behind that is you strap it on like a backpack. It's like a small mattress that's attached to your back. And if you fall backwards, then you're falling on this pad, so to speak. But it's kind of an ingenious thing. I kind of feel like sometimes when I hike, I should be wearing a crash pad. <laughs> a helmet. Let's start you off with the helmet. But. You could start you off with the helmet. If that goes well, we'll think about a crash pad. I would but I act- like the idea. I'm, yeah, I'm not opposed yeah. to it. I would actually also need a crash pad on the front side of me. Yeah. What I'd look like SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> or just stay on your feet. How about that? Like I'm a trip hazard, though. I've gone down. No, you're you are a, a sure-footed mountain goat, and people think that I, I'm like making fun of you when I say that. But that that is a term of endearment. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I still think a crash pad would come in handy. So we had mentioned highlining and slacklining, which has become really popular, and that is basically you know slack lines are like a tightrope that they're secured on either end to something, and then people walk across them just like a tightrope. So why don't they call it a tightrope? I don't know. Why, it sounds fancier. It, yeah. It's yeah. Ex- extra name for it. Yeah. All stuff we're not going to do. Now there's a high line, which is different than a slack line, right. which may be similar or related to a tightrope. Yeah. So a high line is a slack line, which is higher than 10 meters. So if you're low to the ground, like a foot or two off, or I don't know, then it's a slack line, which might be fun to try. But yeah, if it's high up and it's between rock formations or buildings or canyons, then it's called a high line. And on a high line, you also have a harness because that's for safety reasons. So if you fall off, you don't die. Yes, you have a harness that's um, connected by a leash to the line. I tell you what, I have seen videos on Instagram of um, people doing the high line and they are thousands <laughs> of feet. Thousands of feet. Thousands I'm, I'm calling of feet you on this above one. a canyon. I, I, okay. okay, thousands Hundreds, of feet. hundreds right. of feet. I cannot even watch. It makes my stomach just roll watching these people on this on this tightrope. I'm just going to call it a tightrope. If they fell, they, they would lose their life? Is that what you're worried about? Well, I guess not if they have the harness, but it still looks really scary to me. I'm not sure that's in our future. Well, they got your attention, which is what they wanted. Yes. And you know what? It's really cool to see. And when you visit Joshua Tree, there is no doubt that you will see either rock climbers or boulderers or slackliners or highliners, yeah. right? You're right. going to see that. And it's cool to watch, especially if you're bringing your kids. It's a fun Teach thing to watch. Teach them to do dangerous things. <laughs> right. Exactly. Show them the possibilities. Possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's all the stuff you can do on the rocks and stretch ropes across them and whatever. <laughs> but Karen, there are other things to do in the park. Yeah. You know, like in most parks, people bike ride, they bird watch. What what kind of birds are there? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that? <laughs> I don't have that information at hand, Matt. Okay. But Karen, I do. You do? Yeah, I do. I knew that we were going to do an episode about Joshua Tree, and, and I looked at the website, and I stumbled across all of their list of birds. They have a pretty impressive list of birds on the website. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And of course, you know, this gave me a reason to get my life list of birds book out that Sue got me. I'm thinking that maybe I'm going to start taking this serious. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Karen, this is what I thought was interesting. The park has resident birds Uh and they have migratory birds. So they have guests that come in. Well, I don't know if they were invited, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know if the resident birds appreciate the migratory birds. I mean, if you were a resident bird and you have the warblers from Minnesota come in every year and for two weeks and eat all the seeds, I, I don't know if I would like that. But but that aside, yeah, the Joshua Tree website has a, a great list of birds. They have them by all the different categories. There are multiple categories of birds. Oh, yeah. Like ducks and geese, uh-huh. quails and partridges, ospreys, hawks and eagles, shorebirds. I thought that was an odd category because there's... There's no ocean even close. Well, you um, do have the Salton Sea. Maybe they're on their way to the Salton like, Sea. Yeah. You got pigeons and doves, owls, hummingbirds, woodpeckers, swallows, wrens, and thrushes. Wrens and thrushes are separate categories. Okay. Uh, you got wood warblers, and that, that's just a few of them. I, I have to admit, as I'm looking through the categories, I thought some of the categories, I thought that was... The bird. I did too. Like a thrush. Are there more than one thrushes? And now we'll get emails <laughs> from the birders. Um, so I have a lot of work to do. But okay. yes, there are more than one kind of thrush. All right. Well, I guess there is a, a great big world of birds out there that I don't know anything about. Just think about the possibilities there, Matt. Yeah. Okay. And another thing you can do in Joshua Tree is stargaze. That's right, because it's been certified as an international dark sky park. Yeah, on one of our visits, we had dinner with a a chief law enforcement ranger um, in the park at the time, and he told us that they have uh, field trips. They have groups of kids from the inner city of Los Angeles come, and they'll camp, you know, for a couple of nights in the park. And he said that this experience for most of these kids, it's the first time that they have ever seen the stars. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't think about it, but the kids that live in the city, I mean, there's so much light in mm-hmm. L.A. that they're not going to see the stars. And so, yeah, I guess um, that can be a pretty amazing and emotional thing for these kids to see what this, the sky really looks like at night without uh, a bunch of city lights around. I know. I get goosebumps just thinking about their little faces, what they... Uh about their little faces, what must be going through their minds as they're looking up at the Milky Way for the first time and the the discoveries that they've made and the possibilities that opened up to them that they might not have been aware of before. So two cryings in one episode. You know, the, the record is two. And we still have, <laughs> we still have pages of outline left, which might make me cry, but I don't think that counts. I think I think you crying three times would be the record. So let's let's see if uh, what what we have left to talk about. Karen. 
All right. So let's talk about where to stay. Now, camping is a big thing in Joshua Tree because there are eight campgrounds. Five of those campgrounds require reservations. So you can't just show up. And of course, those you can get on recreation.gov to six months in advance. Uh, We would recommend for the more popular season to get them as far out as you can because they they do go. We camped there in February and it was pretty much full. We, We had a problem with our campsite. We had to find a new one. There was like one left. And this was at the Indian Cove campground. This was a trip where we rented a teardrop trailer in Las Vegas and took it down to Joshua Tree and then um, up to Death Valley. And you know what, Matt? Actually, now that I say that, that's exactly, it was six years ago today because I know we got to um, Death Valley on Valentine's Day. So it was six years ago today that we were in Joshua Tree in that little teardrop trailer freezing. (laughs) I'm surprised we did it so early in the year. I would have waited a little bit longer, although you do start getting into spring break season. But yeah, we did um, freeze because it was really cold and the wind everywhere we went. It was very windy. Yes. The wind went right through the teardrop. You know, it gets cold at night in the desert. And I think a lot of people, including us, don't realize that. In the daytime, it's sunny, it's warm, but at night, it gets chilly. And the other thing, too, as I already mentioned, you know, it's dark at like 4.30 or 5. And so we are out there in the darkness. <laughs> I mean, we had a headlamp or two, and we, we were able to make a fire. There was a fire ring, and it was allowed then. I don't know if it still is. I'm, I'm assuming it is. So we had a fire. But boy, you know, it's dark, it's cold at five o'clock. So we would cook dinner and then get in the little teardrop under, you know, 17 blankets. I remember you wore every single item of clothing that we had packed. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) A couple of days later, I was looking for a shirt because I knew I packed this shirt and I couldn't find it. I thought, oh, I've left it somewhere. It fell out of the truck or something. And so I was kind of upset that I'd lost the shirt. And then about two hours later, I found it. It was between a couple of the other shirts that I had on. I, I was wearing it. So yeah, yeah. I right. was wearing all the clothes I brought. Yeah. And so I think we were there for about three nights. And then then we headed up to Death Valley where it was w- much warmer. But you know, that's a rookie mistake. And we have made that mistake before in Utah going in early March. And we think we're going to we're going to tent camp. And it gets down to 30 degrees at night. So I guess the lesson you could learn from our mistakes is that if you're going to camp, uh, you know, check check the forecast of when you're going to be there at night. And Seems make- <laughs> like a simple thing to consider. But right. Yeah. That's, that's why we have this podcast. We explain what we do and uh-huh. don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, or just bring plenty of uh, really warm sleeping bags and blankets. Um, so anyway, those are the campgrounds. There are also three campgrounds that are first come, first served. Again, you know, that might be a struggle in late winter and spring during the busy season to get one of those. Yeah, there's also um, three little towns, would you call them, that are uh, pretty close to the park. You got Joshua Tree, which is a town called Mm -hmm. Joshua Tree. You got Yucca Valley, and you also have 29 Palms, and they have lodging options. They've got chain hotels. They've got spas. They got 
1950s type motels. They, they got it all. Yeah, I was taking a look because as it is in a lot of these national parks, new lodging, new restaurants are cropping up all the time to try to keep up with the demand. So I knew that there were new places since we had been there. And gosh, Joshua Tree has all kinds of interesting lodging. For instance, there's a place called Auto Camp that ha- that you stay in a little airstream. There are places that have cottages, places that have bungalows. There's even a castle. So lots of choices. And you know, the thing about, there's kind of a vibe up there, isn't there, Matt? Yeah, mid-century modern vibe. A, a mid-century vibe and also kind of a hippie vibe, a desert cool vibe. It's a very, very unique place. But I guess the point of saying all this is you could find pretty much any type of lodging you want and and probably to fit most budgets, I would guess, up there. Yeah. Across it all, you got a lot of options. Yeah. And as we have mentioned before, when you're going someplace for the first time, you don't know, obviously, what kind of lodging options are there. So you don't really know what to look up. So just in a nutshell, what we do We go to Expedia or one of those popular booking sites. I'll type in our destination and the dates, and then all of these lodging options come up. And, you know, they have prices, and that most importantly, they have reviews. I love to read the reviews. Then when I find, you know, one or two things that look good, I will go directly to the lodging website and book through the hotel, motel, whatever, instead of booking on like Expedia. Right, because sometimes uh, booking directly on the website of the property, sometimes it's it's less expensive. Also, sometimes you have benefits like cancellation without uh, a penalty that that you might not have on the other booking sites. So, yeah, we, we, we like booking directly with the property when we can. Now, along with where to stay, one of the most important things is where to eat. <laughs> yeah, where, where to eat and drink. One popular place that you and your girlfriends found that I I would have never found on my own is Pioneer Town. Mm -hmm. And at Pioneer Town, you have both Pappy and Harriet's, and you also have the Red Dog Saloon. So you got a couple of options, and those places are pretty fun. They are very fun. And you know, Pioneer Town is also fun. It looks like an 1800s Western town. It looks very authentic, but it's not. No, it's, it's not. But- <laughs> it's a manufactured town. So it was established back in 1946 when a man named Dick Curtis shared his dream. He wanted to have this living, breathing movie set uh, because they were they were starting to make movies, you know, Western movies. So um, he rounded up 17 investors, including Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. They each invested $500, and then they purchased 32,000 acres of land, which would soon be known as Pioneer Town. So it's this functioning 1880s-themed town which they could access from both Los Angeles and Palm Springs, and it would serve as a movie set and a little vacation destination and permanent residence for people who were working in the entertainment industry. So they built this. I I mean, that's kind of a cool story. It is a cool story. I mean, back in the booming Hollywood days, they actually did film some uh, movies. I mean, they say that over 50 films were filmed in in Pioneer Town. Yes, and... 
it's still there looking pretty much exactly the same as when they built it in 1946. So you go back, the, the little road that would run in front of the, the western town is closed to traffic. So you park and you you walk in. It's just pedestrian only. But there's a few cute little shops to look in. There are. There's some surprisingly nice shops amongst mm-hmm. the old western movie set. Uh, one one in particular, I don't, I don't even remember the name, had just like incredible clothes and gifts. I mean, like super high quality, the kind of stuff that you would find in, in like L.A. Right. right? And so, uh, yeah, it's it's worth seeing just to see the, the old buildings and, and walk. But also to go to Pappy and Harriet's or, or the Red Dog Saloon. Right. Those are very uh, fun places, a lot of live music, good food. So we would highly, highly recommend a visit to Pioneer Town. It's, gosh, I don't know, Matt, it's a short drive northwest of this area. What would you say, maybe 10 minutes or so? Yeah, maybe a little bit longer than that. It, I mean, it's off the beaten track, but definitely uh, look it up, Google it, and it's worth a drive out there. Mm-hmm. Now, another place that we went for the first time just a few weeks ago, because the friends who we were staying with had heard of this place, is the Copper Room at the Yucca Valley Airport. <laughs> and we pulled up to this place, and it, it did not look impressive on the outside. Mm-hmm. It didn't look unimpressive, but it, you wouldn't think that there was anything worth visiting there. Uh, it was built in the late 50s. And it looks still like it belongs in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we went in there. It was fantastic food and drink. It was it was a great place. I mean, it's, it's now on our list of must-go places when we go back to that area. I mean, this is if you want a, a nice sit-down dinner. I mean, it's not fancy. You could certainly wear your, you know, hiking clothes if you wanted to. But this is not Pappy and Harriet's. Supposedly, Matt, in the 50s, uh, 1950s and 60s, this was the hot spot in the high desert. They had movie stars and they had pilots coming in and musicians and there were cold martinis and dancing under the stars, as the website says. So after this place kind of fell out of popularity and it was shuttered and closed, then the people who own uh, the Red Dog Saloon and most of Pioneer Town, they came in and they have redone it. But they have redone it in a way that it looks exactly like it did in the 1950s. Yeah, it sure does. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely worth a stop. One more place we wanted to mention, this is a completely different place, JT's Country Kitchen. This is your home cooking at its finest. Um, It's one of those places where you can get breakfast all day long if you want huge servings. Very down-home, authentic place. We loved it. Biscuits and gravy, breakfast burritos, all the good stuff. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Joshua Tree, it's, you know, now that we we list all this stuff out and we talk about, there's a lot to do there. Yes, and if you add on the entire Palm Springs area, there's even more to do. And and really, there's something for everyone. So join us next week as we continue the conversation. That's right. We'll be sharing our favorite hiking trails in the Palm Springs area. And this includes the Bureau of Land Management lands, the Indian Reservation land, State Park, even uh, part of the Pacific Crest Trail. Yes, a lot to do there. So thanks for hanging out today. We appreciate each and every one of you. You know, your support, your kind reviews and ratings, and your friendship means the world to us. So we will see you all next week. That's right.